December 7th, 1941, our land of freedom was defied. December 8th, 1941, Uncle Sam replied. We did it before and we can do it again and we will do it again. We've got a heck of a job to do, but you can bet that we'll see it through. We did it before, and we can do it again, and we will do it again. We're one for all, and we're all for one. They'll get a licking before we're done. Millions of voices are ringing, singing as we march along. We did it before, and we can do it again, and we will do it again. We'll knock them over and then we'll get the guy in back of them. We did it before, we'll do it again. Hi, this is Alan Chartok. To most Americans, December 7, 1941, is synonymous with one event, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. But how did it sound to those American citizens who were sitting by their radios enjoying an otherwise uneventful day? Well, back with us again to discuss another incredible moment in American history and how that day sounded to the millions who were transfixed by their radios is Dr. Ivan Steen. Dr. Ivanstein has been on the faculty at the University of Albany for more than 45 years and currently serves as Vincent O'Leary Associate Professor of History. He's also co-director of the Center for Applied Historical Research. Dr. Steen has conducted oral history interviews with radio performers from the 40s and 50s and has taught a course on the golden age of radio. Today, Dr. Steen will take us on a tour through several selections from the radio broadcasts of December 7, 1941. Welcome back, Ivan. Hi, Alan. Well, you know, as you said, it was people sitting at home on a uh, Sunday and may well have had the radio on. They might have been uh, listening to NBC, and if they were, a few minutes after a news flash came across to NBC studios from Associated Press, NBC then went and checked with the uh, U.S. government, and they put this bulletin out. From the NBC newsroom in New York, President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked the Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. I'll repeat that. President Roosevelt says that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii from the air. This bulletin came to you from the NBC newsroom in New York. Well, perhaps they weren't listening to NBC. They might have actually been listening to a football game on the radio. And some of us may actually remember that there were two major football teams in uh, New York City that had a great rivalry, just as the baseball teams by the same name did. 
there were the Brooklyn Dodgers football team and there were the New York Giants football team and a game was on just at that time and it got interrupted. Here's the West Omaha Condon comes up, he boots it. It's a long one down to around the three yard line. Ward Cup takes it, he's cutting up to his left, he's over the 10. Nice block there by Lehman. Cup still going, he's up to the 25. And now he's hit and hit hard about the 27 yard line. Bruiser Kennard made the tackle. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Stay tuned to WOR for further developments, which will be broadcast immediately as received. WOR, of course, was the uh, flagship station in New York City for Mutual Broadcasting System, which actually was the largest radio network at the time. Other people may well have been listening to CBS, and if they were, they also would have gotten a bulletin about the war. The World Today. By shortwave radio, Columbia now brings you reports from its foreign correspondents overseas with summaries of the latest world news presented over these stations by Golden Eagle Gasoline. Go ahead, New York. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. That's really an interesting little piece. Actually, CBS was due to have that news program on anyway, and the war broke out just right for them. The, the reason that piece is so interesting is the whole controversy over whether that little piece that John Daly actually was coming up with was the original broadcast or later broadcast, and nobody seems to be able to figure that one out. They know he actually did come on and do it, but the actual audio clip may well have been recorded later, but who knows? You know, I've, I've been thinking about something. I once saw a program on this one which they showed a soap opera. I think it was on NBC being interrupted. And the next day, the soap opera was on again. But since soap operas are sequential, I often wondered whether people were left scratching their heads wondering what happened the day before, and they were live, I believe. They were alive, but I don't think they would have had a problem if you listen to soap operas, which is torturous. But if you listen to soap operas, the beginning of every episode, they recap what happened oh, in the last episode, oh, which is marvelous because they were only 15-minute programs. So they did a recap, and then at the end, they would tell you what to think about for the next program. And there were also Will ads. John kiss Ann. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah. And there were also ads. <laughs> so you really didn't have very much new material on any given day in a soap opera. Well, we do know, Ivan, that there are times when people get news flashes and they're watching something else and they're really ticked off about it. There's no real evidence that that happened with the Japanese invading Pearl Harbor. I can't imagine that anyone would have thought they really should have been listening to their soap opera. Well, of course, it was Sunday and there weren't any soap operas on, but their football game or whatever it was. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you about was Americans were not told right away how bad it was, how many people had died, how many ships had been sunk. And it took a little while for that news to get out. In fact, I remember reading that Winston Churchill had wanted to go because the British ports were being bombed also, that Winston Churchill had said to the president that he was going to go ahead and make the announcement and he was going to beat the president to the punch. And that the result of that was that Churchill ignored the president, pretended he never got the thing or never got the thing, and went ahead and did get there before President Roosevelt. Yes, yes. He did declare war before, but the situation was a little different in England and the United States. The, the prime minister could declare war in the United States. The president couldn't until he went to Congress. Congress sure. So there was no way he could do that. But um, Well, Roosevelt asked him to hold back yeah. until he went to Congress, right. and he said no. 
Uh, he didn't say anything. They right. just, quote, didn't get the message. Well, that was also coming across, and also the news of the casualties, because part of the problem was they really didn't know how many instantly, mm-hmm. and you're going to hear different things coming out here. It really took a while to just figure it all out. So I, I don't think there was any deliberate attempt, because as we listen to some of these broadcasts, they are talking about numbers, but it's only what they had at that time. If we move on, the next one's a really interesting broadcast. This comes from Honolulu, Hawaii, radio station KGU, which was the first report from Hawaii that we were uh, getting on this. What's very interesting about this, and they didn't know it at the time, the broadcast from that station was being used as a beacon for the Japanese planes that were coming in, and they really didn't know that, at least when they were doing it. So they were kind of honing in on Honolulu by the signal coming out of the radio station broadcast tower. (laughs) But let's listen to that. I think it's a really interesting thing to hear because it's while it's happening. Go ahead, Honolulu. The island of Oahu in the Pacific one of the most thickly populated islands of the Hawaiian group, was attacked by Japanese planes this morning, starting at about 8 o'clock. No one would believe when reports emanated from the two radio stations here that the islands had been attacked. But when bombs began falling in various parts of the city and in different army and navy posts and bases, people knew Japan was endeavoring to eradicate America's outpost in the Pacific. Now, here's a report that I've gathered from different reporters of the Honolulu Advertiser who've been out endeavoring to get information concerning the Japanese air attack on the island of Oahu in the Hawaiian Islands. The first information in Honolulu that planes of Japan were attacking the islands was about 8 o'clock this morning, Hawaiian time. The first group of Japanese airplanes attached at attack Ford Island at Pearl Harbor, the Navy's mighty fortress in the islands. Uh, Roy Batusik, a local attorney, was up in his private plane flying over Cocoa Head when he said one or two Japanese planes gave him a salute of machine gun bullets as they approached the city. The plane was slightly damaged and Mr. Batusik made made a uh, landing. After machine gunning Fort Island, the first Japanese planes moved to Hickam Field. Observers said considerable damage was done to planes and to Hickam Field. There is great activity there now in clearing the field uh, of debris. At Pearl Harbor, where is based the Pacific Fleet, three ships were attacked. The Oklahoma was set afire. All lines of communication seem to be down between the various Army posts and Navy airdromes and Army airfields. There has been no statement made by the Navy. The Army has issued orders for all people, the civilian population, to remain off the streets. The first raiders carried torpedoes and did their damage to shipping in Pearl Harbor and off Honolulu. Everyone here in the islands were taken by surprise by the attack, and even yet it's difficult for some people to believe that our air raid on these beautiful islands has actually happened and that lives have been lost. Uh, Several planes have been shot down, and anti-aircraft gunnery is very heavy. It is... uh, thought that the planes came from the south in the direction of the island of Kauai. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, Hickam Field and Wheeler Field, several squadrons of Japanese planes came in from the south over Diamond Head, dropping bombs and incendiary bombs over the city. One bomb dropped in front of the governor's mansion at Washington Place and killed one man. Another dropped by 
the Honolulu Advertiser, nearly hitting several people and almost uh, reaching its mark. At uh, Pacific Heights and Dowsett Highlands, beautiful residential districts, there was heavy bombing. One woman was killed in Dowsett Highlands. The governor has proclaimed a state of emergency. Traffic is almost at a standstill in parts of the city. However, the traffic to and from Waikiki seems to be normal. When planes, uh, Japanese planes, appeared over Waikiki, there were many people out in the streets and watched the uh, bombing there. One man at Waikiki was badly injured when a bomb dropped uh, in the heart of that uh, beach resort. The Japanese planes seem to have come over the city uh, and the environs with no intimation whatsoever that these were Japanese planes. And it was a very, a very difficult uh, uh, for people here to believe that these were Japanese planes. Uh, here is a report that just came from Hickam, from Hickam Field. There were 350 men killed in a direct bomb hit on the barracks at Hickam Field. Then at Bellows Field, on the other side of the island, on the windward side of the islands, the field was bombed very heavily. That's all the news from Honolulu now. We'll be back with more news at a later time. This is KGU in Honolulu, Hawaii. You know, Ivanstein, I was just fascinated by the word Japanese mm -hmm. because, as you'll remember, later in the war, everything were the Japs. Right. The Japs were coming. But I guess in the initial shock, there was still a certain amount of respectful language being used. Yeah. Uh, well, it gets worse, of course. Yeah, <laughs> sure. This. Also, this is a program coming from Honolulu, which would have had a lot more Japanese in its population, and perhaps that has something to do with it. I really don't know beyond that. But it's quite a uh, good report because it gives a lot of detail about what was going on in Honolulu, and people are hearing it directly coming in from there. So, I mean, that's far away for a lot of people, but this gave them a kind of a closeness to it. And you notice they, they're giving some casualty numbers. And, and the way this guy gives the casualty yeah. numbers is very matter-of-factly, um, you know, yeah. not a lot of passion. This was not the Hindenburg blowing up and saying, oh, my yes. God, you know, this kind of thing. So 350 people were, were killed in a, in a barracks. That's, that's quite something. Well, that's one of the things I've noticed in listening to almost all of these reports, the reports reporters are very matter-of-fact about everything. I mean, this is really major stuff going on, and they're just, I guess it's being what those, those days would have been very professional yeah. about everything and just giving their reports without any uh, intimations of anything else. What's interesting here, too, is that a lot of planes came over Pearl Harbor. I read somewhere something like 300 and some odd Japanese aircraft. They had to use six aircraft carriers to do that. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, that could never happen. Sure. You could not move six or even one aircraft carrier without everybody knowing with satellite surveillance. So, yes, you, you could do it back then, but you couldn't do it today. We would have thought something was definitely up if six Japanese aircraft carriers were all moving at it once. But I was also, Ivanstein, taken with this business about we didn't know they were Japanese planes. Mm -hmm. In fact, there were been some reports about people waving to the planes when yeah. they were coming over thinking that they were from the airbase. Yes. They were expecting some planes coming over, which is why when some radio operator, I guess, cited this or had some intimation of it, the officer in charge said, no, we're expecting a group of planes over, so it's probably all okay. And the warning didn't go out right then, so nobody really expected that. I think one of the most interesting of the, the clips we have here is the next one, where a reporter for that radio station in Honolulu climbed on the top of the building they mentioned before, the advertiser, the newspaper building, 
got a telephone up there and called NBC to report on the attack as he was watching it. We interrupt this program to bring you a special broadcast. Here's the bulletin. Washington, the president decided today after Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor and Manila to call an extraordinary meeting of the cabinet for 8.30 p.m. tonight and to have congressional leaders of both parties join the conference at 9 p.m. And now we take you to Honolulu. One moment, please. One, two, three, four. Hello, NBC. Hello, NBC. This is KGU in Honolulu, Hawaii. I am speaking from the roof of the Advertiser Publishing Company building. We have witnessed this morning a distant view, a brief battle off Pearl Harbor, and a severe bombing off Pearl Harbor by enemy planes. Now, this is a particularly interesting thing. First of all, the sound quality is terrible. Uh, the reason for that, of course, he's on the telephone outside. There's wind blowing and all kinds of action going on. Hey, Ivan, I've been there many times, as our producer, David Gustina, could tell you. Even to this day, telephones outside don't do very well on the radio. <laughs> That's right. So we have that problem, of course. But the most, I think, amazing thing about this is that he gets interrupted by the telephone operator. They want the line, and they cut him off just as he is reporting on the action, talking to NBC in New York. I guess we could call this uh, bureaucracy gone wild where the operator's supposed to cut in and she just talks in a matter-of-fact voice and we're cutting you off. We don't care who you're talking to, basically. But it is really, really amazing. And this guy climbed up there, got the phone, and called him up. So it's really one of the best reports we have early on coming right out of the zone where it's happening. Well, we move from there to listening to a commentator who was very, very important at the time, Walter Winchell. Uh, Walter Winchell was probably the most influential uh, news commentator of his day. 
an interesting character. Never got beyond the sixth grade in school. Started out in vaudeville. Kind of backed his way into doing a news broadcast. Very opinionated. Often wrong, but didn't seem to mind that. He could get away with it. Listened to by just incredible numbers of people. And for a very long time, from the 1930s up into the 50s, uh, originally a very strong supporter of Franklin Roosevelt and criticized for that. And then in the uh, post-war years, started supporting um, Senator McCarthy and his red baiting. It's just kind of an odd transition that takes place. But certainly a very, very important person. And here is his commentary on the events that day. The Department of Justice is moving rapidly to intern all Japanese nationals. The city of New York has already ordered all Japanese nationals to remain off the streets. Wartime decrees are slated for emergency passage this week. This will mobilize the efforts of the whole American people. The Japanese property in the United States will be seized at once. The Japanese naval effort tonight is unsound, both naval and land. The Chinese today inform Washington that General Chiang Kai-shek will launch a four-million-man counter-offensive. All Chinese Luzanis are intact, and with proper material, Chiang Kai-shek is prepared to support the Russian front. Russia has over 800,000 crack troops poised in the maritime provinces on the Pacific. Official Washington tonight regards Tokyo as authored by Berlin. An all-out effort by the Axis in Africa and Russia is a certainty. The Axis' objective is to leave Great Britain and the United States entirely isolated by next spring. The importance of the Japanese attack is that war between the United States and Hitler is imminent. The national emergency is no longer a phrase. Persons who arouse suspicion by their conduct, each or he, are inviting microscopic examination, perhaps prison. Nothing matters anymore now except national security. Well, does that remind you of anything? It, it certainly does. And notice he's a reporter who is not very matter-of-fact in the way he is talking. I mean, there's a lot of passionate excitement and everything, which is probably what made Winchell so very popular, too, because he really put a lot of his own personality into the uh, reporting. But in New York City, in fact, and, and there is an, a clip available of Fiorella LaGuardia, who was mayor at the time, ordering Japanese nationals to stay Indoors. Interesting, uh, Ivanstein, because we didn't do that with the Italians who we're going to be going to war with later on or the German population, but we did do it with the Japanese. And, of course, the Japanese in the end got bombed. There was an A-bomb, and many people in Japan are convinced that that A-bomb was just an absolute message. You don't mess with the United States on something like that. Yeah. Of course, it would have been a lot harder to order Germans and Italians off the streets because sure. how would one know? Uh, it's well, not exactly. as obvious. Exactly. <laughs> there was a big problem at this time, felt a little later. I mean, at first, the Japanese, of course, are very much demonized because they did, a, after all, have this attack. It was sort of sneaky because the sure. discussions were going on at the time to uh, resolve problems. But the problem was is that most Americans couldn't tell Japanese from Chinese. And the Chinese were our friends. Yeah, yeah. So they had to tread very carefully on being outright just racist because, you know, we couldn't anger the Chinese. We needed the Chinese to work with us in this war. 
by the way, I should say it was on NBC's Blue Network mm. uh, that Winchell was on, which was the predecessor of ABC when it spun off on the uh, regular NBC stage, had been the Red Network. They actually had two networks at the time, which was somewhat almost monopolistic, I think we can say, in any case. Let's take a look at a little message that came uh, up uh, about guarding against sabotage. I believe this one was from a Pittsburgh radio station, but all the stations were issuing the same announcement. The War Department asks that all radio stations make the following announcement. The Secretary of War directs that all firms and manufacturing plants who have defense contracts or who are working on defense orders will at once institute proper measures against sabotage. Repeating that announcement. The Secretary of War directs that all firms and manufacturing plants who have defense contracts or who are working on defense orders will at once institute proper measures against sabotage. That's an amazing piece of tape. Of course, the Japanese did have spies in the United States. And if one watches the History Channel or other things, you have these episodes in which they're talking about, which they have Japanese spies on talking about what their job was during that time. Yeah, well, Germans had spies in the U.S. Sure. too at that time. I mean, you know, and there was a lot of worry right on that there might be some serious problems. So the announcement went out. All the stations were asked to do that, as that announcement says. Another big worry was on the West Coast because we knew or believed that there was Japanese ships heading toward the West Coast of America. For and, a full-scale invasion. Yes. So there was a considerable worry there. And, of course, there was a much larger Japanese population out on the West Coast. And there was also the concern, I think by this time they realized the Japanese had honed in on the uh, Hawaii radio station, the Honolulu radio station's uh, signal about what to do about that. So here is something that comes from a radio station, KIRO, in Seattle, telling people that radio is going to be going off the air. They're all going to shut down and other things that they needed to do. In the first place, there will be no radio broadcasting tonight after 7 o'clock, except perhaps for one of the Seattle stations which will probably be KIRO. Leave your dial tuned to KIRO and you'll get the information that is necessary. There will be no programs broadcast, but any information necessary for the civilian populace will be broadcast over KIRO probably. There will be a complete blackout tonight at 11 o'clock. That blackout is not only for the city of Seattle, it includes every, every light between the California border or rather the Mexican border and the Canadian border. That is in the states of Oregon, Washington, and California. Every farmhouse, every light of any kind in that area must be out by 11 o'clock. To test your blackout, you will have plenty of time between the hours of 7 and 11, between now and 11 o'clock, to make arrangements to get heavy black paper to seal your windows or heavy drapes or something and uh, by going outside with your lights on, you can check before the hour set to see that you are completely blacked out. If you're unable to find materials and so forth to make your uh, windows completely sealed so that no light will leak out, you must have your lights off. However, do not pull main switches. As we told you, ordinary window shades are not sufficient to black out your uh, lights. Do not pull the main switches, however, just use the switches on the, uh, in the rooms and on the lamps. No lights are to be used on automobiles and no lights whatever are to be shown anywhere on the Pacific Coast, in the states of Oregon, Washington, and California until 30 minutes after daylight. From 11 o'clock tonight until 30 minutes after daylight tomorrow morning. 
would have been nice having people driving around without their lights at night. <laughs> Not exactly the safest situation. They were very concerned about a Japanese air attack and that they would be able to hone in on the Pacific coast. I'm kind of intrigued by him saying that that station will be KIRO and that they will probably. <laughs> a little bit, little bit self-serving and hopeful. Yeah, probably would have been. It was a major station out on the West yeah. Coast. They would have done that. But it does show the kind of sort of fear that's coming across to a lot of people, especially on the West Coast, about what could happen. Given the fact that the Japanese were able to get to Pearl Harbor and exactly. bomb it, they can get anywhere. So that was very scary times. And it was a it was a wake up call, of course. That you know, unlike anything that we had here, the thought of being attacked in the United States itself yeah. was just separated separated by oceans on both sides. I mean, we seemed invulnerable in that sense. You know, once we, once we took care of the British, we didn't worry too much about a, a foreign attack on the U.S. But they did here that evening, early evening. Very interesting radio program. Eleanor Roosevelt was on the air, off and on. Uh, that she'd have a run and then she wouldn't be on for a while on the radio. Let's see, she first went on in the 1930s, actually even before Franklin took office, 1932, December of 32, she first went on the air and she stayed on the air until September 1951 wow. on different networks and different times and a radio program. She was scheduled that day to have a program. It was all arranged. There was a person who she was going to interview, but she took the beginning of the program to uh, talk about the attack and a message to women in America and to young people in America. So let's listen to Mrs. Roosevelt. Neighbor coffee-growing nations and presenting to you American families your Sunday evening visit with Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt. This evening, Mrs. Roosevelt has as her guest Corporal James Cannon, 1229th Reception Center, Fort Dix. But first, Dan Seymour has a word from our sponsors, the Pan American Coffee Bureau. In this moment of trial, the seven neighbor countries which make up the Pan American Coffee Bureau welcome the chance to express their support for their great good neighbor, the United States. The new solidarity which has been affected between the Americas in the last few years stands us all in good stead in the face of this emergency. This applies not only in a commercial sense, for Uncle Sam can count on Latin America for essential materials, whether oil or tin or copper or coffee, but also in a political sense. The Americas stand together. Thank you, Dan Seymour. And now here's the Pan American Coffee Bureau's Sunday evening news reviewer and newsmaker to give us her usual interesting observations on the world we live in. Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> I'm speaking to you tonight at a very serious moment in our history. The cabinet is convening and the leaders in Congress are meeting with the president. The State Department and Army and Navy officials have been with the President all afternoon. In fact, the Japanese ambassador was talking to the President at the very time that Japan's airships were bombing our citizens in Hawaii and the Philippines and sinking one of our transports loaded with lumber on its way to Hawaii. By tomorrow morning, the members of Congress will have a full report and be ready for action. In the meantime, we, the people, are already prepared for action. For months now, the knowledge that something of this kind might happen has been hanging over. It seemed impossible to believe, impossible to drop the everyday things of life and feel that there was only one thing which was important, preparation to meet an enemy no matter where he struck. That is all over now, and there is no more uncertainty. We know what we have to face. 
and we know that we are ready to face it. I should like to say just a word to the women in the country tonight. I have a boy at sea on a destroyer. For all I know, he may be on his way to the Pacific. Two of my children are in coast cities on the Pacific. Many of you all over this country have boys in the services who will now be called upon to go into action. You have friends and families in what has suddenly become a danger zone. You cannot escape anxiety. You cannot escape the clutch of fear at your heart. And yet I hope that the certain power given up to me will make you rise above these fears. We must go about our daily business more determined than ever to do the ordinary things as well as we can. And when we find a way to do anything more in our communities to help others, to build morale, to give a feeling of security, we must do it. Whatever is asked of us, I am sure we can accomplish it. We are the free and unconquerable people of the United States of America. To the young people of the nation, I must speak a word tonight. You are going to have a great opportunity. There will be high moments in which your strength and your ability will be tested. I have faith in you. I feel as though I was standing upon a rock. And that rock is my faith in my fellow citizens. It's kind of like a pep talk, I think very well done by uh, Mrs. Roosevelt, obviously a very prominent person, and she speaks more as a woman in this case because she's speaking to the women of America, she's speaking to young people in America. By the way, that was on NBC's Blue Network. Now, Ivan, that was very interesting to me. Not only the pep talk, but there was this key sentence which anybody who was listening would pick up about the months of uncertainty that something might happen. Now, as you know, there have been many historians, some say revisionists, many people we've talked to right here in the studio, who say there's absolutely no way that they knew it was coming. But that sentence in which she said, ends months of uncertainty about this, I think may indicate that at least we should have been better prepared based on what happened. Well, there was uncertainty. I mean, there was some belief that the Japanese might do something because we were in their way of their ambitions in the Pacific. But many people believe, and I think that the official belief was that if they did something, it would probably be in the Philippines rather than Hawaii. They really didn't think, as far as I can see, that most people, I mean, some may have, but most people, that it would actually have been in Hawaii that the Japanese would have attacked. And the question was, what would they really do? Would they launch a full-scale attack? Would they create one problem or another problem? So there was an uncertainty. We were in negotiation, obviously, with the Japanese at the very time this took place, which is what angered a lot of people because you don't move six aircraft carriers overnight. So all the time negotiations were going on, the Japanese were preparing for their attack. It had been planned well in, in advance. There were investigations right afterwards. Some military people uh, got into big-time trouble. Um, and some got fired. And <laughs> yes. w- and it was important that they were fired. Yeah, but there had been the uncertainty. There was the uncertainty about what was happening in Europe, too. So in, in a way, this was, okay, now we know what it is. Not pleasant, but we know what it is. Also, that evening, we get a kind of a summary of what's happened, which I think is good to listen to, from NBC, the Red Network, by one of their fairly popular commentators, uh, Robert St. John. So let's hear that. Japanese bombing planes roared out of the sunrise over the Pacific early this morning and began without warning war on the United States. Those planes spread death and destruction over the U.S. territory of Hawaii. 
Japan acted exactly as her Axis partners had acted so many times before. She attacked without a formal declaration of war. She attacked at dawn on Sunday morning. Now, it's almost evening across the Pacific. In the ten hours since that first bombing, much has happened. During those ten hours, Japan has formally declared war on both the United States and Great Britain. Canada has declared war on Japan. The Netherlands East Indies have declared war on Japan. This news reached us in a dramatic telephone conversation between the NBC correspondent off there in Batavia and the NBC newsroom. The declaration called upon the people of the Dutch Island to wage an all-out war against the entire Japanese Empire. About the same time, Costa Rica declared war on Japan. A Japanese fishing boat anchored off that Central American Republic was seized. Japanese natives were promptly arrested. And just a few minutes ago, Nicaragua declared war on Japan. And now comes a bulletin from Mexico City. The Mexican Congress will meet in an emergency session tomorrow to consider a declaration of war against Japan. Ten minutes ago, word flashed across the wire that President Roosevelt will address a joint session of Congress at 12.30 p.m. tomorrow, without a doubt, to consider a declaration of war against Japan. The President met for hours late tonight with his cabinet, a secret emergency session. The War Department estimated 104 dead, more than 300 wounded, among the Army men alone, on the island of Oahu, one of the Hawaiian groups. This does not include any civilian casualties, which may run into hundreds. Early afternoon reports from the White House that the Japanese also bombed the Philippine Islands have not yet been confirmed from Manila itself. Neither is there any confirmation of a British report that Wake Island, owned by the United States, has been occupied by the Japanese. Nor is there any confirmation of a rumor that Japanese troops have landed in Thailand. At the Chinese port of Shanghai, the Japanese Army and Navy just before dawn surrounded the international settlement. Notice was served on the commander of the U.S. gunboat Wake that war was on. About that same time, a British gunboat anchored nearby suddenly blew up. No harm has thus far befallen any of the Americans or British in the international settlement of Shanghai, as far as we know. All of them have been ordered to remain in their homes. From Maine to California, from Iceland to the Philippines, the United States Army and Navy at this moment are on their toes, ready for action. This very instant, U.S. warplanes and warships may actually be in action. The Panama Canal Zone is on a full wartime footing. All Japanese are being arrested. Aircraft patrol the skies. The cabinet is in an emergency session. The whole canal zone is blacked out. The streets dark, deserted. Here in the United States, the entire nation has become suddenly solidified. North, east, south, west, all sections have sprung into action. All military and naval personnel were ordered to the colors. Army, Navy, and Air Base recalled uh, men on weekend leave. All furloughs were canceled. A steady stream of soldiers and sailors poured through the streets of large cities, heading back to their posts. From Maine to California, armed guards patrolled industrial plants. Details of watchmen were increased. State police and local officers aided in the precautions against sabotage. The chairman of the House Military Committee said it would take only an hour or two tomorrow to approve legislation so the National Guard and draftees in the Army can be used outside the Western Hemisphere. So we have a kind of a summary of what's happening, and one of the things that I think was being talked about a lot, and I think for reasons to make it very encouraging to American people, all these other countries were now declaring war on Japan, most of which, of course, didn't have much in the way of armies or yeah. the things that we would be able to use, but it was kind of a show of solidarity, and it kind of shows some of the good work that Roosevelt had done with his good neighbor policy with Latin America, that the Latin American countries were coming in so rapidly and at least making statements, and in some cases doing some things for the um, war the United States 
case was now facing. Another broadcast that's quite interesting is an analysis that came on CBS that evening by William L. Shira. Shira, of course, was a very prominent radio commentator of the time. He was one of the people who worked with Edward R. Murrow, was part of the group of the Murrow Boys. Originally, later they broke up and Shira went off on his own. But Shira had been in Europe mostly. He had been stationed in Czechoslovakia at that time, Prague and spent time in Berlin, in fact, did a book out of his detailed diaries called Berlin Diary, and he gives a kind of analysis, his analysis of what he sees in the day's events. And a prominent resident of the Berkshires while he was still alive in our listening area. Let's listen to William Shira. Senator Tom Connolly, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said tonight on the way to the White House that the Japanese attack on the United States possessions soon may result in open warfare between this nation and Germany and Italy. It would seem indeed that Japan's unprovoked attack on this country today had thrown us into war not only with the Japanese, but with their dominant ally, Germany. In other words, as many far-sighted people have been saying for some time, this is a gigantic world war between the Axis nations, Germany, Italy, Japan, on the one hand, and the rest of the world, principally Great Britain, Russia, and the United States on the other. And it is obvious now that the Japanese military clique, which has provoked this Japanese-American war, has gambled all, the whole future of the Japanese empire, on a Hitler victory. What Japan has done today in beginning hostilities against the United States is to begin to play her role in the Axis attempt to conquer the world. For had the Japanese militarists not believed that Germany would soon conquer Russia and then liquidate Great Britain, it is very doubtful if they would have acted as they have done. What is amazing to the American mind is that Tokyo should gamble on a Hitler victory at a moment when Russia has shown that she is far from beaten and the British Empire is stronger than it has been at any time since the war began. However, that is the business of the Japanese not of ours. It's their gamble. To be sure, Japan's act of war against the United States today will benefit Hitler for the moment. It will mean for the moment that we can send fewer planes and tanks and guns to Russia and Britain and even China. It will mean that we will have to concentrate most of our naval power in the Pacific, giving Hitler a further advantage in his much bogged down war in the Atlantic. These things benefit Hitler for the moment. But there are other things which work the opposite way. The first is that this country, which was not unified on the question of going to war with the Axis, has been unified since about 2.30 p.m. this afternoon. Indeed, the only dissenting note came from Senator Nye, who was quoted by the United Press as blaming the Japanese attack on the British. But Senator Wheeler did not take that line. He said, the only thing now is to do our best to lick hell out of them. We face Japan and perhaps the rest of the Axis tomorrow, then a unified nation, which will now turn all of its great resources and abilities from peaceful occupations to that of winning the war. That is one thing Hitler had not bargained upon up until very recently at any rate. You know, Ivan Steen, I'm so interested in this concept of the Japanese gamble. And while it doesn't mean an awful lot, and I think it's absolutely true, he was right, um, the gamble, of course, uh, 
in, in terms of contemporary America and contemporary world politics is Japan has the second largest economy of any nation in the world. Yeah, well, they actually achieved their ends by losing the war. I think you might be able to say there have been jokes about it and actually a movie about yeah, it. Yeah, there was. The, the mouse, mouse that, that roared is the best thing is to fight the United States and lose because then they'll help you out so much you'll improve your economy. But there were a lot of the commentators um, that you might listen to from that day were really surprised about the Japanese doing this because they did see it as a big gamble on the part of the Japanese and that they were very confident ultimately the Japanese were going to lose. There were some commentators who believed that the Japanese had been pressured into doing this by the Germans because the belief was this would be very helpful. As Shira talks about to the Germans, uh, Shira says, in the, at least in the short run, because sure. uh, we were busy sending all this equipment over to England with Lend-Lease. And in fact, in a fireside chat that we don't have here, we don't have time, uh, that Roosevelt did, he talks about how this will not interfere with any of our Lend-Lease operations. So obviously, even the government was thinking that the Germans probably thought this would be to their advantage and would cut back on that. So it's a really nice piece of analysis. It is. It was very good. And and. Of course, Churchill and Roosevelt agreed very early that first came Hitler and then That's came right. the Japanese. Right. Well, the next day, as they've already been telling us, Roosevelt went before Congress sure. and gave one of the truly iconic talks before Congress in all of American history. Uh, I tried to edit it for the purposes of brevity for our broadcast, and I really couldn't. It's a really, really tight, short speech. So let's listen to it in the entirety. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought 
to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very light and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. interpret the will of the Congress and of the people when I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, 
we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Well, that was clearly one of the most amazing speeches. had the exact impact that it was designed to have, not only on Congress, but on the American people. And you can imagine just about everybody must have been listening to that uh, broadcast, not just the folks sitting in, uh, in in Congress. And it's delivered so beautifully, too. I mean, Roosevelt was just a master in front of a microphone. And we, should, and we should remember, of course, there he was standing those steel braces, right. which took half an hour even to get on, and terrible pain getting up to the podium and walking to the podium, uh, in which he was going to give that speech. Yeah, and just delivers it so beautifully. If you read the speech, it seems even shorter. <laughs> it's because of the measured way he delivered it yeah. that it runs to about seven minutes as a speech. Because when you look at the text, you say, well, it's about two-minute speech, you know. But he just knew how to do it. And one of the things that happened, as, as Shira points out and others, is real unification in the country. I mean, even the most ardent isolationists pretty much backed down, like Burton Wheeler, who he, uh, Shira had mentioned, and Gerald Nye was still <laughs> claiming England started the whole thing and all the rest of that. But there had been a lot of dissent about war and preparation for war and all of that, and the events of Pearl Harbor, the kinds of things that went out, like Roosevelt's speech, that just ended that, and they were able to get everyone behind it, which would really the only way we we're going to win that war is if they had tremendous cooperation from the public, as indeed we did. And the number one hero in the United States, Charles Lindbergh, who had been somewhat sympathetic to Hitler. Right. That was the end. And Roosevelt was a man who didn't forget. Right. And when Lindbergh wanted to get back into it, just sort of to restore his prestige, I don't think that they wanted him in. No. And also, we listened to Walter Winchell before Winchell went after Lindbergh. Oh, really went after Lindbergh, as well as uh, he didn't like the isolationists, he, and he had tremendous influence and impact with the American public. I think in Winchell's case, probably because he, he spoke to people the way they spoke. Yeah. You know, he was not a, a well-trained, well-educated person. He talked to people. They understood him. He made up slang words. I read somewhere that he probably contributed more to American slang than anyone. Interesting, you know, <laughs> but there were a whole group of people in the United States who didn't go to college, right. as you mentioned before, but who turned out to really be superb. For example, Harry Truman, the right. president of the right. United States. You don't see that anymore. No, and you certainly don't see someone like Winchell, who never got past sixth grade, yeah. rising up that way. It was a different era, different influences. And the language, so as, as you can listen to all of what you've brought to us, Ivan, the language that we use today is very different from the way people spoke even in, in the 90, uh, last of the 30s and 40s. Mm, yeah, people were much more careful about language, I think, than uh, at least the people you would have on the air, uh, individuals you know, talking in the street had their own slang and ways of talking Indeed. back then as we do uh, today. But the people you heard on the radio, and that has, has an impact on the way people would speak, that you heard words pronounced properly, 
nowadays people on radio and television just talk like anybody else pretty much they're not trained and that has an impact on the general public too i mean people knew how words were supposed to be pronounced and used from listening to radio they may not have always done it but they listened to it that had to have some impact we're much more let's say fair careless in a way about language today than we were back then i'd like to move now into uh, a song what happened is right after pearl harbor the songwriters got to work. And within hours, we're actually cranking out songs, and in a short while, we're recording. And the song we're going to hear was written in those few hours after Pearl Harbor, and it was actually recorded later that month, December 23rd, 1941. The song is called You're a Sap, Mr. Jap, and it kind of reflects that whole idea that many commentators were talking about, that the Japanese were crazy to do this. They're going to lose, you know. We're going to eventually beat them. It'll take a while, maybe, but we will beat them. This was a big mistake on their part, and the song really reflects that. Of course, why we're playing that song is it was a sign of what the United States was thinking, how the mobilization was going, what propaganda was going to look like. Right, absolutely. And you know, World War II was such a big, big event in America, and you really had to find ways to whip up the American people sure. into enthusiasm. And if we were going to do all these things, you really had to hate your enemy. I mean, some of the problems we've had in more recent years with wars in, in America, we don't have a defined enemy to hate in quite the same way, and we're a little wary of trying to do those things anymore, and I think in many ways rightly so, but it does make it difficult to get the whole country behind a war effort. Uh, it's sung by a group called the Murphy Sisters, who I think have been pretty much forgotten to everybody today, although if you do a, um, a Google search on them, you will discover there were some people who thought they were as good or better than the Andrews Sisters, and I guess they didn't have very good managers <laughs> compared to some other groups. One of the references I just want to clear up for anyone who wonders what it was, because I had to look it up, there's a line about the A, B, C, and D, and what that referred to is the, the Americans the British, the Chinese, and the Dutch, which Japan saw as their enemies and who they wanted to beat. Otherwise, it would be kind of a mystery to most people what they, they're seeing about. So let's listen to You're a Sap, Mr. Jap. Well, Ivanstein, we are delighted that you have come to WAMC once more, filled with these wonderful and researched gifts for us. Our guest has been Dr. Ivan Steen. The project is conceived by the Center for Applied Historical Research. Thanks to our wonderful producer, David Gustina. I'm Alan Chartok. Thank you all for being with us. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, Call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at wamc.org.